Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon, and we have another show overflowing with great guests. Tell them who's on the show, Steve. Today on the show, author Rachel Housel Hall tells the story of when she first met us. We're sitting there enjoying breakfast, and my 13-year-old daughter says to me, Mom, they have guns. Author James Ziskin saves all his good answers for us. And I think I still have about five left good ones. And Ryan Gaddis recalls the moment when we asked him to be on Writer Types. You know, I got a phone call at about five in the morning on a Sunday, and I figured this is bad news. All that, plus a host of authors come to us from the halls of Thriller Fest to tell us about the most thrilling thing they've experienced in their real lives. And we make Kate Malman cry. Well, technically, Wonder Woman made Kate Malman cry. Uh, Yes, but we were recording it at the time. Perfect. But first, Steve, read any good books lately? I definitely have, Eric. We'll talk to Ryan Gaddis later on in the show, but I recently read his latest book, Safe. It's about safe cracking, and it's set against the backdrop of the 2008 housing crash. But it's also about a couple of guys from the streets of Los Angeles who are trying to make sense of their lives. I I really loved his last book, All Involved, and with Safe, I think that Ryan Gaddis has become one of my favorite L.A. authors writing today. I I highly recommend this book. How about you, Eric? You know, I also read a book from one of our guests last time, Richard Lang's The Smack, which was absolutely excellent. But I kind of knew I would like that since I'm a big fan of his work uh, anyway. So I also want to talk about a book that I picked up by an author named Wiley Cash, who was a name that I've heard around a couple times and had sort of been on my radar but I found myself out on my lunch break at work without a book. I, was, I, was, I had finished a book and then I forgot to bring a new one to work with me. So popped in a local independent bookstore, Chevalier's Books on Larchmont in Hollywood. So shout out to them for keeping the flame of indie bookstores alive. And I spotted one of Wiley Cash's books on the shelf and I thought I'd take a chance and ended up absolutely loving this book. It's called This Dark Road to Mercy. And it's his second novel, and I'm definitely going to be going back and picking up the first. But this was a book that was not necessarily marketed as crime fiction, but it's definitely crime fiction, but has a really deep beating heart. To the, and there's a, there's a father and daughter relationship, actually, that kind of mirrored what happened in The Smack. And also one of my other favorite books from this year, She Rides Shotgun. So it's a great year for father-daughter crime fiction. So I really recommend Wiley Cash. Well, I definitely have to say that it is one of my favorite things about you, that you can't even be five minutes without a book. (laughs) I just don't want to be one of those guys sitting by myself at lunch, which is sad enough on its own, but just sitting there like on my phone. That's that would just be too sad. For some reason, I think having my nose in a book is somehow less sad, but maybe not for people watching me. Now, let's let's go ahead and go with that, Eric. Well, something else we both read recently were the responses to our online poll of Writer Types listeners. Yeah, uh, we just wanted to take a second and thank everybody who took the time to take the survey. The feedback you guys gave us was fantastic, and in a lot of cases, really eye-opening. Yeah, and we read them all, we listened to what you had to say, and we're going to make a few changes, starting with this episode, and try some things out. So uh, you can always reach out and talk to us on Twitter, at WriterTypes, or on our Facebook page with suggestions, author questions, or just to tell us how great we are. And now it's time to talk to an author who recently left us here in L.A. and decamped for Seattle. And we missed him so much that we had to have him on the show. 
James Ziskin is also a talented writer of the Ellie Stone mysteries, including the latest, Cast the First Stone, and the Anthony-nominated Heart of Stone. James, you're, uh, you're going to be first up in the show, and I want to know, is this the first time or maybe the only time that you've ever been first in a lineup with your last name that starts with Z? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just about. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know if you guys do it, but if you ever see your books in a bookstore, you know, you go, I go to visit them, but, uh, uh, and I see it's always on the bottom shelf on the far right side and, uh, you know, almost impossible to see. So yeah, it's nice to be first. <laughs> Since you recently relocated from Los Angeles to Seattle, has the new environment had any effect on your writing? Is Ellie Stone suddenly getting into Pacific Northwest bands from the 60s like the Sonics? Well, I'll tell you, we got here in end of September of last year, and we had like one week of, of beautiful weather, and then it rained for six months straight. And uh, <laughs> it was very atmospheric. And uh, I, I wrote the second half of uh, my book here in a local coffee shop. I don't know if it made it gloomier or not, but um, but now the weather's been hot and sunny and I'm not getting as much done and I'm, my deadline is looming again. Writing an Ellie Stone book set in sunny California from a, a gloomy coffee shop in Seattle? Actually, it wasn't sunny California because it was February 62 when it rained for two weeks straight. So Ellie got gypped on her uh, her first trip to Los Angeles. She kept hoping for sunny weather and it uh, it was it, it just rained and poured. Uh, and that I discovered just by chance. It was, you know, I was doing some of the research and I always look at the newspapers and, and there's like headlines about, you know, four inches of rain overnight in Los Angeles on one of those days. And that's the day the body is discovered, actually. I thought that was made, it, gave it a really nice noirish touch, like a Chandler uh, novel. Uh, well, to me, maybe not to anyone else. But, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's nice of me to compare my work to Raymond Chandler's. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, James, uh, just so we're clear, that was a test. I actually knew that it was raining oh, okay. in Hollywood in February of 1962. <laughs> okay, well, it's pretty well known, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do research for these interviews, you know. I think, it was, I think it was an El Nino year because it really rained a lot that year. They closed the Los Angeles School District. All schools were closed for rain. Oh, it was like a which, snow day. Yeah, yeah. So, James, you, in addition to moving from L.A. to Seattle and things like that, you've lived and worked internationally, kind of all over the globe. Do you have a favorite place to visit? I really love Italy. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Florence and uh, working and, you know, playing and studying. But uh, I really liked a lot of places. We were in um, Austria a couple months ago and just had a wonderful time. Had never really been to Austria except across the border. And... Um, we spent 10 days there. So that was great. But, you know, I've spent uh, two years in France, three and a half years in India. Where does this wanderlust come from? I don't know. I always was interested. You know, my first love was languages. And, uh, you know, I studied Italian and French and uh, always loved to travel. Probably through my 20s and 30s, it was, it was all in Europe. And then uh, 30s, 40s and 50s have been mostly India, I guess. Well, switching gears from international travel to time travel, can you tell us why the 1960s are the right time period for the Ellie Stone books? Uh, for several reasons. I, first of all, I, I love like nostalgic tales and you know transporting the reader and myself to another time. I, I like that, and I think that that was an interesting era 
where, you know, the 50s have just ended. Kennedy is about to be elected. But it was a period just before the sexual revolution, before women's liberation movement and, and the civil rights movement really gaining uh, traction. So uh, I wanted to write a story with a with a I had the great idea, <laughs> the naive idea that I would write a first person female uh, narrator and uh, and a young one at that. And uh, so in 1960, uh, Ellie Stone is about, you know, 23, very smart, obviously. And, and I think writing with that distance helps me write that female voice. I really don't think I could do it today, writing a 25-year-old uh, young woman convincingly. I don't think I, I could manage that. But the distance that we all have from 1960 helps me a little. It's kind of my crutch to lean on. But I wanted to, to have a detective who, you know, it's tough enough to be a detective and solve crimes. And we see that in our, in our books, right? Uh, but I thought, what if, what if I make it even harder? And, and it's, it's a young woman. And it's a young woman working on a newspaper where she's treated like the girl reporter. And they want to give her, you know, wedding stories and society page uh, stories, things like that. But she wants to, you know, sink her teeth into the meteor things like the local murder of the society girl. Is it in any way depressing that uh, as recent past as the 60s, where several of us were, were born, is now become uh, considered historical? Well, just really for the first time, Eric, because I don't know if, you, if you've ever noticed that the historical, and I don't write to, to be nominated for an award, but the historical categories for all of the awards, tend, the cutoff date is, is before 1960. So I missed it by three weeks on, the, on my first book. And, uh, <laughs> And, but finally this year, for whatever reason, the McCavity did nominate um, Heart of Stone, which is the fourth book that came out last summer. They nominated it for, for Best Historical. So, but that's a first for me. But yeah, I can't believe how the time has flown and, and what seemed like, you know, yeah, just yesterday is now historical. Well, now that you're, you're six books in and you're sort of committed to using Ellie's last name, Stone, in the titles, do you kind of regret that now? Is it getting harder and harder to come up with titles? <laughs> no, no, I think it, it's been great for branding because they all are common expressions with the word stone in them. And I get suggestions all the time from people, oh, you should uh, have Ellie go to Woodstock and call the book Stone or everybody must get stoned <laughs> or something. And I'm just like, well, that's one I'm going to avoid. Uh, I don't want to <laughs> just use the word stone. It's got to be, it has to be in, in a common expression. And I think I still have about five left good ones. Like sink like a stone, blood from a stone, two birds with one stone. So you see these these titles I have, I think I have about 11 of them and I'm on book six right now. So I, I'm okay for a little while. After writing six books about Ellie Stone, do you have anything uh, akin to a crush on her? I think Ellie is fantastic. I mean, I, I just really like her, but uh, there's a lot of, uh, and this is kind of odd to, to say, but there's a lot of me in Ellie. So <laughs> like, I mean, for example, our, our opinions are, you know, our politics, our uh, empathy maybe for people or, you know, the way we, we look at the world. We do share values, I think. Obviously, she's younger, shorter, better looking. She drinks and occasionally ends up uh, with a man. She is Tied like yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I kind of had a crush on her, but now I feel weird about admitting that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but she's the only thing we really share is that the uh, the values, Steve. So you're safe. You're safe. <laughs> Well, now to someone who still lives in L.A., and we're so happy to have him here and for him to have a brand new book out that Steve uh, already lavished praise all over. Yeah. Ryan Gaddis, as I mentioned before, is the author of All Involved, a novel that Eric and I both absolutely loved, and is also the author of the brand new novel, Safe. 
Well, Ryan definitely has one of the most interesting biographies we've ever come across. Uh, so we talked to him about tattoos, safe cracking, and you know, eventually books. Ryan, you, you recently got back from England for the release of your latest book, Safe. Uh, yes. Given that your stories are so LA focused, how is your writing received over there? That's a great question. I, th I think it's generally received very, very positively, but that mainly has to do with the fact that pretty much everyone on earth is familiar with Los Angeles. True. Mainly because of Hollywood, I think, but but film and television play, play such a massive role. And, and if anything, I think that that gives me as a writer a number of opportunities, which is to show perhaps a bit of LA that just doesn't get covered or shown. By and large, I've found audiences in Europe very engaged and interested in the US and wanting to know more how and why the way it is, as opposed to what. For example, gang violence in Los Angeles, which is something everybody's heard about, but not everyone will give you perhaps a nuanced and in-depth answer as to why. So for this latest book, Safe, it's obviously, it's about safe cracking. And you got to see a real live safe being cracked up close and personal. What was that like? I did. Oh man, that was honestly, I think one of the coolest experiences I've had, mainly because it was so unexpected. It was completely out of nowhere. You know, I got a phone call at about five in the morning on a Sunday and I figured this is bad news because yeah. it was from one of the folks I've, you know, spoken to and, and hung out with for, for all involved. Uh, so, you know, I'd kept that relationship going and, and I was kind of wincing when I just got asked, oh, hey, uh, do you want to see a safe get cracked? Yes, absolutely. You know, tell me where to go. I got there. You know, I knock on the garage door. The garage door opens. I go in. The garage door closes. And there's a safe, a very large safe, probably four feet high by three feet wide. And it was flat on its back. And the two safe crackers were just laying out their tools. You know, I, I had the image in my head that was perhaps implanted by the aforementioned Hollywood of stethoscopes and... Uh, <laughs> lock picking, if you will, as opposed to, to cracking, which uses diamond tip drills and rebar. And, you know, just it's, it's very much, I think I relate it to boxing in the book. And that's what it felt like watching these guys work on it. So that was before the, the concept of the novel even came to you? Absolutely. In fact, I was researching a different book entirely. <laughs> and in many ways, I think it was a spark that allowed me to go away and, and create uh, the main character of Ghost around this idea of just being able to talk his way out of anything. Uh, and, and in some ways, I suppose, you know, if, if uh, all involved is man, Yojimbo, then safe is probably uh, Sanjuro with the one where you have a main character who never wants anyone to get hurt. Sometimes it's inevitable. He's trying to avoid it at all costs and he's using his mouth and his smarts and his knowledge of this world to, to get around it. But yeah, it, it was, it was a fascinating journey and it, and it really started on that day. So, you know, in both All Involved and Safe, you use more than one point of view to tell your story. Uh, why have you settled on that as a preferred way of storytelling? You know, I think the truth is simply that after having spent eight years of my life writing a failed third person novel, I just realized that I'm a first person writer. It's how I best connect with what I'm writing. It, it, it's how I get to that mythical flow, this idea of flow and just 
feeling like, wow, I, I get it. I, I'm one with the character and, and we're moving somewhere. You know, we're getting through plot and we're pushing forward. I think it just came to the point where I realized, you know, this is the type of writer I am. And, and it's a little risky, you know, because especially with, with a novel like Safe, because I didn't want the voices to sound too similar. So it, it became extremely technical at one point. It was all good. It was, it was all constructed. I remember talking to, to Joe Lansdale one time and he was talking about first person being sort of the most, the purest form of storytelling because it literally goes back to like mm. sitting around the campfire and telling a story. Do you find that really, that's why you connect with that first person voice? I think so. I, I think in some ways, you know, no disrespect to, to Melville or, you know, other writers of, of that era, but I think Twain kind of defined you know, what it is to be an American writer and, and use American voice and, and really truly set us apart from, say, the British literary, what they were doing. At least for me, having spent monstrous hours of research listening to people, sitting down, having drinks with them, eating with them, you know, visiting really crazy places with them. So I think what I try to do when I use voice in my novels is give the reader a sense of what that's actually like to be in the room with folks who've lived these lives or who have done these things. You also teach writing. Um, so what, what is the first lesson you try to impart on students when you first start a class? I think probably the first thing I try to impart is trust yourself trust your voice you know it's it's what if your what, voice is terrible though well <laughs> i'm sitting right here i'm sorry <laughs> i totally i totally hear that but you've got to start somewhere you know i i don't know how much you actually learn aping other people's voices or trying to put yourself in other people's boxes i can't tell you how many students i had who who had convinced themselves they loved the deepest most obtuse and obscure literary fiction when at the end of the day they'd go home and perhaps read the most amazing fantasy or crime and and yet that they would then walk into a classroom and try to do something else as opposed to write what they were passionate about write what they would most like to read and i i think at the risk of sounding very uh trite and possibly californian which i am not but i am becoming <laughs> you have to be cool with with what you've been through and you have to be willing to confront things you've been through i know for me the biggest jump in my writing life was finally writing about violence, you know, after having been a, a survivor and a victim of violence, uh, you know, for years, I, I didn't want to write about it. But when I finally did, I started making strides. It was terrifying, but I grew. Well, you referenced a little bit your uh, tattoos, and I know you have your massive back tattoo and, and, and some other stuff. And Steve and I miraculously spent a lot of years playing in bands. We were in the punk rock scene. Neither one of us has a single tattoo. Are we just wimps? No, not at all. You're, you're grown men who made personal choices that you are more than <laughs> entitled to. Uh, you know, I found though that, at least for me, tattoo has served a really interesting and therapeutic need that I didn't even know I needed till I was till I was doing it but uh, well, we should probably specify it's a, your tattoos is you know it's not like you have you know Bart Simpson saying eat my shorts or anything I mean you have oh, serious no. like artwork tattoos <laughs> yeah it's it's I mean technically I have one tattoo right now so it's you know my arms go all the way up and all the way down my back um, it's it's you know, my work is done by a really important artist by the name of Chris Brand, who actually combines 
Chicano black and gray style with Japanese style. And my piece actually tells a tale from an ancient Chinese novel that he has adapted to Los Angeles of the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, he has this vision that that's incredible. You know, at the risk of sounding a little bit cheesy, I think for me, it's even it's even armor uh, in, in, a, in a way. You know, it goes all the way down to, to the backs of my knees. It goes, you know, three quarters of the way down, you know, each arm. And I think next year we're going to finish the front and connect everything together. I don't look forward to that because, you know, as I get older, it's, it's you know, it takes longer to heal. And, and it's, it's a, just a rougher process in general. But I'm, I'm definitely glad the back is done because that was, well, that was, that was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to hear more of our nearly half-hour conversation with Ryan and specifically the story of the trauma he suffered as a teenager where his nose got nearly torn from his face, and trust me, you want to hear this story, you can find us on Facebook and listen in to that exclusive outtake that we just didn't have time for here. But, you know, for now, Safe is sitting right on deck as the next book that I'm going to start reading, and I'm really excited for it. I think you're really going to love it, Eric, and I think uh, you should actually hang up right now and just go read it. Okay. End of show. What did we learn? Yes. Yes. Right. Well, after all our listeners are done reading safe, they'll need something new. So that means it's time to check in with our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. Each episode, we borrow the Malmans from our friends at Crime Spree Magazine, where they review books, comics, and movies. All right, guys. What do you guys got for us this time around? This time I'm going with no books. It's summer, books are work, no books. What? <laughs> Everyone needs to go see Wonder Woman in the movie theaters if you haven't seen it already. Hasn't everyone uh, already seen it? You haven't seen it? I, I, I think I might be the, the lone holdout in America, but I have not. You need to see this. It came out in June, uh, directed by Patty Jenkins. It's Wonder Woman's origin story, which for some reason, Hollywood has told us up until now people aren't going to understand, and they made it incredibly understandable. They show Themyscira, where the land of the Amazons are, where Princess Diana lives. The entire island is made up of women, and they're being trained to be warriors. And one day, Chris Pine, a World War I spy, crash lands his plane, and there's this amazing battle scene on the beaches of Themyscira between the Germans and the Amazons. Wonder Woman realizes that there's a, a war going on and goes to help fight in World War I. The marquee scene of the movie, which is the one where it suddenly got really dusty in the theater and my, ears, my eyes teared up, it was really weird. They're in the trenches in World War I and she finds out that there's a village on the other side of the trench and there's this family, they're like, my, our family's over there, you need to go save them. And she comes out of the, the trenches you see her in her full Wonder Woman costume, and she's walking across no man's land, fighting bullets with her shield and her wrist guards, and it's amazing. And they wanted to cut the, that scene from the movie because there wasn't anyone that she was fighting. There was like no big bad on the other side. Highly, highly, highly recommend the movie. This is an example of why representation matters. There's no reason. You can't have more, more movies like this. So I should bring my daughters is what you're saying. Totally. Yes. Yes. One of the things that came out afterwards, kindergarten teacher wrote to Patty Jenkins. She's like, after the movie, this is like the day after. A little boy was obsessed with Iron Man and he like insisted his parents got him a Wonder Woman lunchbox. 
all the little girls couldn't decide who wanted to be Wonder Woman, so they all became Amazons. So just really neat things like that. So, yeah, go see Wonder Woman. It's been an interesting sort of cultural thing. This the seeing this film really affect people, and obviously, Kate. I mean, you're really affected by it. It's been really gratifying to see the huge response to this film in terms of the box office and and even the critical response as proof that yeah, this is actually your your arguments against female led superhero movies are false, and and there actually is an appetite for this. Oh yeah, yeah, and when you look at movies like. Mad Max Fury Road, um, even the Star Wars with Rey and Rogue One. I mean, you're seeing more of that. And I think yeah. people are getting it. And it's it's very empowering. Well, and Dan, you even took it that one step further. And you married Wonder Woman. Oh, yeah. Uh, see what I did there? That's called uh, marrying. I thought, well, yeah, that was awesome. Dan, please tell us that you still read books, even though it's summertime. Actually, by no, uh, no pre-planning, we both went comics this time. Lots, lots of folks have been enjoying the Netflix uh, Marvel shows, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Daredevil, Daredevil, and yeah. Iron Fist. The next Netflix show is going to hit The Defenders. That's going to be everybody together, getting together to fight, again, the big bad. Mm -hmm. So Marvel has uh, rebooted a, an old line that they've done uh, since the 70s, The Defenders title. Brian Michael Bendis is writing, and Bendis has been um, writing these very same characters since the early 2000s. He actually is the one that created Jessica Jones as a character. So this book is meant to showcase, you know, um, the street level crime. You're not seeing aliens and you're not seeing, you know, world beaters. It's, it's definitely grim. It's gritty. It takes place that people get beat up in bars and on street corners and under street lights. So it's that definite um, gritty noir melding of everything and it's been fantastic so the defenders are different from the avengers who are different from the justice league yeah yes good job but one of those has batman mm -hmm. the justice league but then the avengers has iron man yes, yes. that's that i've tapped out my limit <laughs> <laughs> i'm sitting here very impressed it sounds like the defenders is maybe a little more my speed yes absolutely yeah we've talked about it many times it's I always think, um, we're gonna go hang out with Eric. I wonder if Eric's read Criminal. I wonder if Eric has read, you know, Sleeper. And he's like, eh. I'm like, one day, one day. This whole hanging out with Eric thing's pretty overrated. I can tell you from personal experience. <laughs> My wife would agree. <laughs> You're listening to Writer Types. I'm Eric Beatner, And I'm Steve Loudon. Now, Eric, you were just in New York City for Thriller Fest, right? Yes, I was. It was my first time at Thriller Fest, and I had a really great weekend. And you were up for some awards, as I understand it. I was up for a Best Short Story uh, Thriller Award, yes. I'd love to see a picture of you holding that award. So would I, but I do not have one because I lost to Joyce Carol Oates. Well, look, if you're going to lose, that's who you lose to. Exactly. It was hard to be upset about it. It was a great weekend and uh, everyone in the category, I, I honestly would not have been upset if anyone else had taken home the prize. It was a great category. Well, while I was there, I ran into a few author friends in the hallways and decided to ask them a question for our unpanel. I am Rob Hart, the author of The Woman from Prague, which just came out. And uh, yeah. So Rob, I'm uh, here in your fine city of New York for a thriller fest. And I want to know from you, Outside of the page, outside of the fictional world, in your real life, what's the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to you? Oh, uh, probably my daughter. She's two and a half now. It's like living with Leatherface. It's like, <laughs> it's just peril around every corner. 
I started taking Krav Maga a year ago, and part of that was because I wanted to get in better shape, and I wanted to do something that was a little bit more engaging than just running on a treadmill, because that got real, real boring real quick. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm also afraid of her. You know, <laughs> so you're you're taking Israeli self-defense for your two-year-old child. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, my name is Todd Robinson. I'm the author of the novels The Hard Bounce and Rough Trade. What's the most thrilling thing that's ever happened in your life? Uh, I almost got murdered when I wandered into the red light district in Brussels. Now we're talking. Yeah. I was wandering around Brussels, and I just wanted to see the city as uh, for what it was. And I'm lost as hell. My GPS is kicking out on me. And I wandered into the red light district. I saw lights before I realized they were red. So I was in the North African red light district, where on alternating corners there were uh, semi-retired Somali pirates, and on the other corner were the current Moroccan gangsters. And me as the giant white dude couldn't have been more obvious if I had an American flag around my neck and my pants off. I have never felt so over my head in my life because I am looking at people. It's like, they're not tough guys. They're not going to get into a fight with you. These are straight up murderers on every fucking corner. And they are looking at me like the dinner bell just rang. And at any second, I'm expecting a hood over my head and a gun to the back of it. Uh, well, we're glad you made it out. Uh, yeah, barely. Uh, my name is Jay Kingston. I'm the author of the novels Hell on Church Street and No Tomorrow. So, Jake, what's the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to you in your real life? Recently, I met Todd Robinson, author of The Hard Bounce. <laughs> and you were almost murdered by him. Yes, as, as is everyone who ever meets him, yes. <laughs> My name is Brad Parks. I'm the author of Say Nothing. What is the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to you in real life? I got interviewed by Eric Beatner. Boom. Well, next up is author Rachel Housel-Hall, author of the Eloise Norton series, the latest of which is just out, titled City of Saviors. And since this is a show that's supposed to be about writing, we asked her about a peculiar habit she has that involves something most writers don't actually do these days, genuine longhand writing. I read that you still write out your first drafts in pencil on a legal pad, is that right? That is correct. I'm a lady of a certain age. So I grew up, you know, writing with pen and paper and I, I love it. I get to sprawl out in, in thought with a pen and pen. I feel it's too formal for me when I go straight to the computer. It can't, I can't do it. And plus I like pads and, and pens. I'm a, I'm a pen snob. I'm a uniball and tool office depot pen snob. So I, I like it. I'm more comfortable there. And then do you have somebody else do the transcribing on the computer? Or is, that, is that your second draft? Yeah, that's my second draft. And, you know, once my daughter gets old enough to understand my writing, then I'm going to make her do it. But it uh -huh. then gives me another chance to figure out what the story is and to edit it in my head more. So it just makes it, it cements it. So that's, it's interesting, though. So when you're actually translating it from being handwritten to typing it, are you sort of rewriting it and translating it for yourself and editing yeah. as you go? I'm doing that. I'm editing. It's it's still crap, but it's better crap. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's smoother. <laughs> so, Eloise Norton seems to be the quintessential LA woman. What makes her a product of this town? Because it's 
it's me. I'm basically writing about a stronger, braver me. I am an Angelino. I grew up here. I actually live up the hill from where I grew up. And it's weird because, you know, you grow up in a working class neighborhood in Los Angeles, but it's different from any other working class neighborhoods in the country because it's beautiful here. You know, it's my, my older brother who's transplanted up to Oakland. Whenever he comes home, he's like, everyone in LA is beautiful. Even the ugly people are beautiful in LA. And <laughs> Thank I, you. The skies and the palm trees. It's weird being poor in Los Angeles. And so I wanted her to have this kind of duality where you grew up in this neighborhood, but your sixth grade, you know, tetherball camp champion grew up to be a rapper. And so there's this weird, you know, it's a weird LA thing that nowhere else has it. And I wanted to embody that. I wanted her to be that, to be from this area of Los Angeles. That seen transition, it's seen scary things. It's LA at its finest and its worst. And that's who Lou is. LA in its finest and in its worst. Now, your previous Eloise Norton book, Trail of Echoes, revolved around the murder of a 13-year-old girl. And I want to know, as a mother yourself, is it difficult to write about violence against uh, someone that young? It's very hard. And this was probably the hardest for me because I am a mom and now my daughter is 13. But when I was writing it, there were moments where there were little black girls who were being snatched and no one was caring. And as a mom, you know, that pissed me off because it's like, well, the little blonde kid, she gets noticed all the time and people put ribbons and flyers everywhere, but no one's doing it for these girls. And so I wanted to write it as a tribute to those girls. And also we are introduced to violence too many times at young ages. You know, yesterday, this is a, a story. Yesterday, my daughter and I, I had Friday off and we went to breakfast in Westchester, good old Mayberry, Westchester. And we're sitting there enjoying breakfast. And my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, who's never really been met with violence, says to me, mom, they have guns. And I'm like, what? And I look over my shoulder and the FBI, the freaking FBI is there with big guns and they're arresting two people at the tables right outside. This is at the coffee company. And I tell her to get down on the ground because 10 agents or so are there with big guns. And I've never heard her say that. I've never seen that type of fear in her eyes. I've never told her to get down because bullets may be flying. That was what I grew up with, you know? And I never thought I'd be saying those words to her. So she's fine, but she will never forget that. She will never forget just hanging out at a place we always go on a Friday, having pancakes. And the FBI is there in Westchester. So, you know, writing about violence in kids is scary and, you know, it's unsavory. But unfortunately, kids are met with it all the time, even in the company of their parents. So, you know, as writers, that's what we do. It may be hard, but it's our job to kind of help people get over it or to understand it or to see it resolved in some way or even you know look for clues on how to deal with it a lot of writers get inspiration from different places you were inspired by beating cancer was it a now or never situation when you wrote that first mystery it was because you know you figure you have a lot of time and 
you know, having the cancer experience while I was pregnant with my daughter and then having it come back again, it's like, okay, I may not get there. So what is it that I want to do? And I've always wanted to write a mystery series. And, you know, it terrified me because I'm not a cop. But, you know, with cancer, it's like, oh, well, that's the thing to be scared of. Figuring out how, you know, what guns to use and the patter and all the rest of it. I can figure that stuff out. The hard part was getting past the, I may not be here, so I need to figure out what it is that I want to do. And fortunately, you know, it worked for, for me. I got the deal and here I am four books later with this series and this character who I love and a lot of people love and, and I didn't feel by with. So yes, if anything, you know, cancer kicked me in the ass to get me to where I want to be. All right, well, I feel like we're bringing the room down a little bit with these questions, so I'm going to lighten it up and mention that your very first book, A Quiet Storm, was selected for the Rory Gilmore Book Club. Yes! A club based on the imaginary book choices of the fictional character from the Gilmore Girls, which made my wife and daughters very happy for you. So I have to ask, are you Team Dean or Team Jess? You know, I don't even watch the show. Oh, come on. Don't tell me that. The girls are going to be so disappointed. It's like, yeah, okay. Which, that one, that one. Yes. Okay, I, uh, let, me, let me make this easy for you. Do you go for the bad boy or more like the straight-laced good guy? I tend, I tend to the straight-laced good guys. Yeah, I... Bad boys, I, I write too many stories in my head, and so I don't need extra drama. So the good guy, the good guy. Well, one of the highest profile debuts of last year was Eric's story's Nothing Short of Dying, the start of a new series that introduced Clyde Barr, a man with a mysterious past and a deep sense of justice. Well, Clyde is back in the new novel, A Promise to Kill, and we spoke with Eric from his home in the wilds of Colorado. So Clyde Barr is back for his second adventures and uh, misadventures, I guess maybe I should say. Was it easy to jump right back in with his story? Yeah, it's because he's always, you know, wandering and finding some sort of trouble. And that's just kind of the, the motif that, you know, that, that you find in those old Westerns that I wanted to go with. And especially in this one where he's kind of wandering into a town that's and he helps one person, finds out the whole town's in trouble, has to help the whole town. Is that, do you draw sort of inspiration from kind of Western fiction and that kind of lore? Oh yeah. I mean, I grew up reading mostly Louis the Moore books and then living that kind of Western life and still living in the West and seeing how the West is now. You just use some of the older Western stories and put them in this contemporary West. And it turns out pretty well. So would you say that uh, Clyde is more of a, a, a guy in a white hat or a guy in a black hat? <laughs> it's, it's the gray, you know? <laughs> You know, one of the things that strikes me about Clyde is is that he's a man that really wants to disappear into the wilderness, but kind of keeps getting pulled back in. Should this tell us something about the author? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, I'd prefer to be out in the middle of nowhere. Like, I write out in the middle of nowhere, but then I get sucked in with having to do the stuff I didn't know that you had to do when I started writing. You know, like book tour <laughs> interviews and speeches and that, that stuff was... It was, it's actually really hard for me. It's a whole new world for me. So if, if you had your way, you would just be uh, in, in the log cabin with the typewriter and just churning out pages? Oh, yeah. And that's actually, 
how I grew up. We spent, I grew up, spent most of my time out in our homestead or up in the flat tops wilderness above Nikar, Colorado, where there is no running water or electricity. So it's, it's pretty easy for me to do that compared to these computerized things that I'm not, I'm not very good at. <laughs> so do you think that people like Steve and I are just crazy for living in a place like Los Angeles? No, oh, yeah. That's one of my least favorite places to drive, especially <laughs> since... <laughs> Could you ever foresee a day where Clyde Barr or a Clyde Barr story would be set in an urban metropolis like Los Angeles or New York? Absolutely. As soon as I get enough of the early wilderness ones, so, you know, people get more of an idea of how he deals in the wilderness, then I'll take him and, you know, crocodile Dundee him and throw him into the city and have him <laughs> have him struggle there more than he struggled in any time in the previous books because it'll be a test for him there's a romantic part of me that would love to kind of throw it all in and i think move to an area like yours i mean i've always loved the mountains and and just that idea of of living off kind of by yourself but am i fooling myself is this not something that uh, am i romanticizing it too much and it's not for everyone yeah it's definitely not for everyone hopefully i can you know give a sense of that in the books so that you don't have to do it. Cause the hardest part for most people, if you're not, if you didn't grow up that way is the loneliness. I mean, most people are used to social environments, a lot of people around them and there's nobody. And you have to think to, uh, to yourself all the time. If you're stuck in your own brain, some people it's pretty hard when there's no distractions like TV or internet or books, even and you're, like when I was younger, sitting on the back of a horse all day, there was no radio, no cell phone. You know, it gets it gets really strange. So some people, it's not for them at all if they are stuck in their own brains. So let me ask the question that Eric just asked in a slightly different way. If if we were to come out and be part of Clyde's world, how long do you think we'd last? A couple of days, maybe a week? <laughs> well, if you're with Clyde, you'd be fine. But <laughs> by yourself, I don't know. Yeah, I'll give you a week. That's very kind of you. I'm just jealous because I, even if hard as I tried, not only could I probably not ride a horse, but I could not grow a beard nearly as epic as yours, Eric. Oh, and this is trimmed. I wanted it, you know, down <laughs> to my, the, you know, I was aiming for navel, but my wife said no. So. <laughs> so even out there in the wilderness, the wife is still really in charge of the homestead. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned, you know, uh, having to come to grips with some of the realities of getting into the publishing world. Uh, but, you know, your first novel, there were several rites of passage. Uh, your first hardcover, first book tour, you got a Lee Child blurb. Uh, what's your favorite memory from that first book release? Oh, it was all pretty much a blur because it was all so much at once. But uh, my favorite was actually part of the book tour. One of the library systems in Colorado set up a speech at a high school. It was a, uh, an alternative high school for extremely troubled high schoolers. That was probably my favorite part because I, I connected with those kids. It was easier to talk to them than it was a lot of the other people who show up at, you know, the signings. It was very interesting just to talk to kids that actually thought, oh, wow, somebody like this guy can write a book. So maybe we could do something with our lives. You know, <laughs> that was probably the most impressive part of the tour. Were, were you that kid? Were you the kid who was trying to find a way and try to find a voice for yourself? Yeah, I was completely unsure what I wanted to be growing up. So I tried almost everything. I think I've worked 32 or so different kinds of jobs so far wow. besides the writing, just, you know, mostly manual labor kind of stuff, but I had no idea what I really wanted to do. And I think that actually just helped the research for the writing now. 
Tell us about the most ridiculous job you worked. I washed dishes at a at Furnace Creek Resorts in Death Valley. Just the people, most in most seasonal work, you get a, a very interesting group of people anyway. But nobody wants to work in Death Valley because of the heat and, and you know. But so we had the strangest crew I think I've ever worked with. There was a guy whose name was Catman. And it wasn't his nickname. He showed us his driver's license. It was Catman. <laughs> he changed it because he really liked cats. He worked there for a year, never cashed a paycheck, and then was fired eventually because he had a fifth of whiskey in his locker. That he was one of the cooks at this place. So <laughs> wouldn't recommend, you know, eating during those years. That's one of the stranger ones. Wow. Yeah. See, I thought you were going to say something, you know, castrating bulls or something, but that's probably just like a regular Tuesday for you. No, that was, yeah, normal work growing up. But. Well, now I really kind of want to go eat in Death Valley. I actually just want to hang out with a guy named Catman. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, you know, I talked to a few more authors in, when I was in New York City, and we got some really interesting responses to this most thrilling moment in their own lives question. So, Steve, I want you to listen to this, and this is proof that crime writers are sometimes the softest and gooeyest, mushiest people you ever met. I'm Brian Panowich, author of Like Lions and Bull Mountain. So, Brian, we're here at Thriller Fest, and I want to know from you, what is the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to you? My wife, probably. Yeah, she thrills me every day. Because she's smoking hot, and I can't understand how the fuck it happened to me. You're probably going to edit that, but right. No, no, yeah, I'll, I'll leave yeah. that in, because wives appreciate yeah, that. That's it. That's it. Yeah, hands down, man. Nothing beats her. So. That's, and this is exciting, because you are a firefighter by trade, so you right. would think that you encounter a lot of thrilling things every day, but the wife went and beats all that. Smokes even smoking hotter than a real fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know what? Burning buildings, to me, have become old hat. So it's not so much thrilling anymore for me. But I see, like, my wife and back of my neck, you know, gets all tingly. And that shit's thrilling. Well, we don't know how you got so lucky, but congratulations. No shit, right? <laughs> you and me both, brother. She met me in the dark. <laughs> I'm Joe Clifford, author of the Jay Porter Thriller series. What's the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to you? Jesus. <laughs> Do we have enough time? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, I was just telling somebody about waking up uh, on my 30th birthday in a Massachusetts jail naked. I was alone in the cell. But that does, does not even come close to the most thrilling thing. I mean, the whole last seven months of my addiction in, in, in 2000 involved so many stolen cars. <laughs> So many arrests, uh, so many chases, somebody being chased down by, uh, you know, people I owed money to and stole money from. I was printing checks to myself and cashing in banks. The cops out for my arrest. I had felony warrants. I was fleeing across the country on Greyhound buses. Um, so to whittle that down to one experience would be really difficult. I, I, I guess we'll stick with the na naked in the Massachusetts jail just because that was my moment where it's like, it's time to... Uh, Stop doing this. <laughs> you ought to write a book or something. You know, I should. Maybe I should put it. Uh, I'll call it Junkie Love. We'll see if anybody buys it. <laughs> so we're here at Thriller Fest. I'm with Val McDermott. It's nice to meet you. Hi. It's nice to be here. I want to know, we're at Thriller Fest. What is the most thrilling thing that's ever happened, not on the page, but in your real life? Oh, that's a really difficult question. My life has been full of thrills in recent years. Probably the most thrilling thing was the moment when my partner said, I do. 
Uh, we got married just over a year ago, uh, and uh, it was uh, probably, yeah, the best day of my life. Now, it's interesting, the, uh, I say thrill, and then you went to something that's actually kind of sweet and, and loving in your life, and not the time that you know someone almost got murdered right in front of you. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever got murdered right in front of me. Um, no, I, th I think those are the things that, 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 that thrill me. They're the things that fill me with uh, that sort of really sense of something exciting happening. Why do we love the thrills on the page to be the ones that get our pulse pounding and, and the excitement going in a very different way then? Well, it's, we love being scared in a safe place. It's the same reason we go on roller coasters. You go on a roller coaster and you scream your head off all the way around and then you get off and you think, let's do that again. Because <laughs> it's safe. Adrenaline's a great drug. It's, it's, it's legal and it's free and it makes us feel good. We get a real buzz. But within the thriller, the crime novel, you feel that sense of, of there's going to be some sort of resolution. We're going to be safe here uh, because that's the nature of the genre is that the, the central character does provide some kind of resolution. So no matter how scary uh, or horrifying what's happening on the page is, we know it's okay. And we also know that when we close the book in the evening, nothing bad's going to happen until we open it again. Uh, so the real, the real thrills in life come from those, those wonderful moments, I think. Um, it's not the moment where you think, oh my God, I'm going to get run over if I'm not careful. <laughs> so, so I think that for me, the, 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 thrill, the real thrills are the ones that, uh, that fill you with joy and delight. Wow. Two authors talking about how much they love their wives and one talking about waking up naked in a Massachusetts jail. Well, that's writer types in a nutshell. So another great show, Steve. What have we learned other than crime writers are a bunch of softies? Well, we learned from Eric's story not to eat at a diner in Death Valley. And Todd Robinson taught us not to visit the red light district in Belgium. Like I'm going to take that advice. <laughs> Too late. And Rachel Housel Hall taught us that writing a book sometimes means actually grabbing a pen and writing a book. And that does it for this month. We'd like to thank all our guests and contributors for joining us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and don't forget to rate us in the iTunes store and on Stitcher, and subscribe if you like what you hear. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. As always, you can find out more about Steve's books at swloudon.com. And you can find out more about Eric's books at ericbeatner.com. Join us again on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. <laughs>